I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 115. About IBD is excited to be partnering on this new limited podcast series, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD. After being diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, patients will naturally be concerned about being able to live the life that they envisioned for themselves. During a flare-up, we might be concerned about traveling or trying new foods, but the goal of treatment should be to get back to doing the things that we love. I wanted to get both the patient and the clinician side of how people with IBD can improve their quality of life. For this discussion, I asked Dr. Sandra Cazada, a gastroenterologist who specializes in IBD at the University of Maryland Medical Center, and Varada Srivastava, a Crohn's disease patient and biotechnology major who is also a 2022 Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network Fellow. We outlined some of the ways patients can put their IBD symptoms into perspective, how we can trust our friends and family with our truth, and why we shouldn't wait for a perfect time to try new things. Our topic is reducing the day-to-day burden of living with IBD. It's a broad topic, but we're going to focus especially on how having IBD can keep us at home because we can't get too far from a bathroom. I've asked two guests to share their knowledge and experience on this topic. I have with me Dr. Sandra Casada, who is a gastroenterologist at the University of Maryland Medical Center. Dr. Casada, thank you so much for coming on about IBD. Would you take a minute to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Amber, for for having me and including me in this episode. Uh, So my name is Sandra Quezada. I am an IBD doc at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Um, I have a couple other roles there. I'm the the Dean of Admissions there and the Dean of Faculty Diversity and Inclusion, but I'm definitely here today in my role as an IBDologist. Thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Also here with me is Varada Srivastava, who is a student majoring in biotechnology, a Crohn's disease patient, and a 2022 Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network Fellow. Varada, welcome to About IBD. Would you take a minute to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm Varada, and I'm from India. I live in New Delhi right now. And I go to Shabnada University where I'm majoring in biotechnology, which my interest in biotechnology came from getting diagnosed with Crohn's. I was diagnosed when I was 15. And I think it took almost two years for the diagnosis to happen because of the lack of awareness in India, uh, which is where CCYN comes in. It has immensely helped me. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for digging into this topic with me because it's really important to people who live with IBD because it impacts our quality of life pretty significantly. But I think what we want to get to here is the ways that we can minimize that and the ways that IBD patients need to think about their disease and need to understand when they are overcompensating. So Dr. Quesada, I'm going to start with you. When you talk with your patients about their IBD diagnosis, how do you explain how this disease should or maybe shouldn't affect their everyday life? Yeah, you know, it's true that I would say majority of the time when I'm talking to patients about their diagnosis, either because I'm explaining a new diagnosis or we're sort of revisiting this, um, oftentimes this is in in one of the worst moments, I think, of the patient's disease course because they're either 
flaring in the hospital or they're really sort of teetering on the edge um, and, and just in the midst of a terrible flare. And so I don't need to explain to the patient about how tough this can be, right? I think that they're very aware of how challenging um, the symptoms are. Mm -hmm. I often think it's important in those moments to remind patients and to give them hope Mm -hmm. um, about how good we should be able to get you feeling, that if we can get this under appropriate control in the appropriate therapy uh, and give you the support that you need to have, that patients should be able to live their life. And I do think it's important too to kind of express how this is going to be a a shared sort of teamwork process, that this really is one of the diseases where it's so important to have shared responsibility between the patient and the provider. And on the patient side, you know, we're going to rely on the patients as providers to let us know what's going on. And so that really requires the patient to be very mindful and noticing, you know, maybe certain things like maybe some foods that don't agree with them or, or, or something like that. But basically, so that when we do communicate that they can express really truly what's going on, um, maybe keeping track of some of those things writing down can be helpful. But I also you know, it's sort of balancing that with, I don't want you to, though, have to be thinking about this all the time, that really my goal is that you should be feeling good enough that you can kind of forget that you have this diagnosis, that you should be able to live your life, engage in the activities that you want to engage in, um, and that that is ultimately our goal and where we're going to get you. So so that is, I think, a really important piece to stress when, when talking to patients just sort of generally about the diagnosis and how this is going to affect their life. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you so much for that. It really sounds like your patients have a great resource in you. And I admit to forgetting sometimes about the IBD, but I live with a J pouch. And sometimes I forget that I I actually can't really eat like normal people. <laughs> um, so it's nice to forget about it. But at the same time, it's like, whoops, sometimes maybe yeah. I do need to remember. It's that balance. Monitor, but also, you know, don't don't like hyper focus and center everything in your life about it all the time. If you if you if we're doing our job and getting you well enough, that is a place where you should be able to get. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And after your Crohn's disease diagnosis. Did you find yourself settling into a different kind of a new normal? And what did that look like for you? I know you said you were dealing with symptoms for approximately two years before your diagnosis. So how did that all settle in for you? I think it was really difficult to settle into a new routine after my diagnosis, Mm -hmm. mostly because my life after that became very unstable and unpredictable. Mm. Uh, Flare-ups during the first year of my diagnosis were very common. And uh, finding trigger food was something that I really struggled with because Indian food is like really spicy, has lots of oil and stuff. So that was really difficult. And I was 15 and I was in high school. So finding a balance between work and social life with this new disease was also very difficult. My parents really helped me out with that. Like my mother found like new recipes and stuff that worked with Crohn's disease and they emotionally supported me a lot. Were you very open with them about your day-to-day and how the symptoms were and how, for instance, like you mentioned food and how the food that you were eating affected you? Yes. I think a lot of doctors in India actually did not believe me when I was telling them that I was sick. So my parents really fought for my diagnosis. So they were my biggest cheerleaders during that time.
we have to get into the the talk about bathrooms. We just we can't get away from it. Um, we don't like to focus on it, but at the same time, the reality is is that people with IBD need to use bathroom on occasion, sometimes more than other people. So, Dr. Casada, during a flare up, patients might need to be near a bathroom, but when they feel better, they should be able to go back to your life, as you were describing. So, I think. Some people get used to their symptoms and then they learn to incorporate these restrictions into their life and they work around them. How do you help your patients recognize when they're they're overcompensating too much? Yeah, absolutely, Amber. I feel like I see this really often, mm -hmm. um, more often than I than I'd like to because it's it's unfortunate because you know your patient actually is in a great place and they should be doing all the things that they want to and, and they're not. One of the first things I do like to do though is I, I like to sort of reaffirm the patient in just how resilient they really have been, that they've been learning um, and managing these very, very challenging symptoms and situations that, that the disease can put them in um, and that they've done all of that with I think more grace than most people can do. I'm, I'm inspired by my patients every day. At the same time, then, then I say, but we can do better. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, it, and honestly, again, if, if, if there are symptoms going on, I, I do definitely want to make sure I'm not missing something here, that there isn't maybe some disease activity that, that hasn't really fully been addressed. And, and are they still managing symptoms? So first we have to make sure that that's that that's been properly addressed. Um, also that maybe we're not, if there are symptoms and maybe the disease is well controlled, is there maybe something else going on? Is there another overlapping process that, you know, we have a tendency sometimes to chalk everything up to the IBD and then we mm -hmm. forget, but you can have other things too. So we definitely want to make sure we're not missing something here. But if we are in a place where actually, you know, you're on the right meds, you're, you're on the perfect dose, and there's no evidence of disease activity. And, and actually, it sounds like even symptom-wise, you're doing pretty well. And I have had patients where they're in that place, where they're, they're in remission. They're doing great, but there are some activities they don't want to do because they're afraid that it's going to trigger another flare. And then they, they just want to like really hold on to and protect being in a remission, which I fully support and understand. But sometimes I think it's clarifying um, that these activities that they're concerned about may not actually be associated with triggering a flare, that it's perfectly safe. Um, for example, a patient of mine who was an avid runner um, and was just a really, really uh, amazing athlete, really, but had stopped running clearly in the midst of a flare, which is understandable. You need to give your body a break, right? Um, but then they were doing so well. And then I realized that they hadn't restarted running again at all. Mm. Um, and so then, you know, and they were just concerned that this would somehow trigger a flare. And I was like, you know, the, just reassuring them, we don't have any evidence to suggest that that is connected to triggering inflammation and that you're going to have another flare. And so it's safe, reassuring them it's safe and even healthy for them mm. to, to get back and engaging in these activities. So again, I think it's making sure that we're not missing something. If there really is a disease activity that we need to get them to a better place. But if they're already there, then it's just about like, let, let's clarify what are your goals, right? If you were feeling awesome or you weren't even worried about triggering a flare, what would you be doing? What would be those things you want to do? And then one by one, really thinking through why this is probably actually fine for you to do or and not only fine, but healthy and you should do it. Right. And you shouldn't have to leave behind the things that make you you. 
Right. Going back to your what you loved before should really be like when we talked about treat to target like that. Maybe that should be one of the targets. And so you have to let your physicians know that these are the things that are really, really important to you and that you need to get back to them. Absolutely. Verona, how about you? Have you had this experience where you found yourself sticking close to home or to sort of safe spaces? And uh, how did that affect you? Especially, um, you know, you were so young, you were a teenager and now as a young adult. And how does it affect your social life? Uh, yes, I think one of the major decisions of my life, which was choosing a university, really was really impacted by me getting diagnosed. So I did not go to another state. My parents live in the state mm-hmm. where I go to the university. Mm-hmm. And that was really disappointing because I felt like I was missing out on a lot of opportunities and going to a different place. For some time, it really made me resent my disease. But mm-hmm. I think as I've grown up, I've realized that it's important for me to work with it. Do you ever bring it up to your doctors when you find that your symptoms are limiting the things that you want to do with your life? Or do they ever ask you about that? Yes. Uh, during flare-ups, uh, I really like to discuss this with my doctors because studying and doing normal activities becomes very difficult. Mm-hmm. Mostly the advice that I get is to focus on my health and get better first and then focus on the rest of the things, yeah. which sucks, but it's the best <laughs> advice to get. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you have things that you want to do. So Yes. It's, it's a frustrating position to be in but Mm -hmm. you know you have to accept it um Mm -hmm. my friends and family usually ask me how I deal with all of this and I think I don't really know how we deal with it I think it's just one day at a time yeah I hear that from a lot of patients I think Dr. Casada, you said you find your patients inspirational and I think though that a lot of patients worry that they're not dealing with things very well but maybe they're dealing with them better than they think that they are. But then we also have to acknowledge that sometimes patients might need a little more help if they're feeling anxiety, if it's becoming a little bit too much, they're struggling to keep up their relationships or get back to the things that they did before their diagnosis. So Dr. Casada, is there a point or a time or something that tells you that a patient might need to work with a mental health professional to get some of these things resolved? Yeah, I mean, so sometimes during an interaction when I'm hearing from the patient about what they've been dealing with, and I kind of get that sense that there is a more overwhelming kind of sense of either anxiety or depressed mood, you know, that I it starts to trigger for me the that question, is this is this more than just somebody who's obviously understandably upset and dealing with a very challenging situation? is this something that really does warrant additional help, mental health assistance, more certainly beyond what I can provide. And so mm-hmm. we do have some, you know, kind of like screening questions that we ask. And what we're asking about are, is there this sort of persistent uh, sense of anxiety or depression that lasts more than, more than just a few days? And we're talking weeks now. Um, mm-hmm. Also, if it's really in impacting your ability to sleep properly? Is it impacting your diet? Have you sort of lost interest even in doing the things that you used to love doing? And also if there's a sense of a loss of hope, like those are sort of the signals Mm. that I really get concerned about. And if honestly, if even just two of the things that I mentioned are, are, are going on, um, then I do at least recommend that I think it would be a good idea to touch base 
with a mental health provider um, just to cover our bases. You know, a therapist, we actually are fortunate at University of Maryland because we do have an interdisciplinary practice and we do have a therapist in our clinic so we can make those easy connections. And, and the thing about it is like these questions that we ask, this would be a signal for for any patient, right? So any patient mm-hmm. that's going through something. But I think particularly in our patients with IBD, we have to be extra thoughtful about this because depression and anxiety and these sort of mental health diagnoses are more common among our patients with IBD. And I think it's, it's you know, it's understandable. It's because they're dealing with a lot of challenges and it's appropriate that they should get additional support to be able to manage that. And the other thing I like to reflect on is the fact that when our mental health isn't at its prime, isn't really, you know, if we're, we're in some way dealing with that in addition to the physical health, that we're going to be not as well able to manage these symptoms. The, the way we experience the symptoms is going to be amplified by being in this not as healthy emotional and mental state. And so when we can get that also under better control, you're also going to feel better, I think, physically. I think it all is linked um, very much so. So so that's, I think, the the additional goal, not only because in and of itself, it is um, a worthy endeavor to want to make sure that you are at your optimal mental health, but because it's also, I think, going to give you that much more bandwidth and energy to be able to deal with the physical part of this disease. Right. You put that so beautifully. And I think about the early days of my diagnosis, and this was 30 years ago. So there were still, I mean, there's still these people today, but there were the people who thought that I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis because I was an anxious person. And, but then it becomes this sort of uh, cyclical thing. Well, no, I'm feeling anxiety because I have IBD and I need to know where the bathroom is, <laughs> you know? So it's like people say, well, you're, you seem like you're anxious all the time. Well, yeah, you know, because I have this disease. <laughs> it's not that I was anxious and that made me sick. It's, you know, it was kind of the reverse. So I think it gets a little tangled there, but you're right. Especially living through what we, this collective trauma we're all living through. Yes. We all now have so much less mental space to deal with anything, just anything, tiny things even. And so dealing with a big thing on top of all the other things that are happening, it, it does really become extremely challenging. And to me, it's no, it's no wonder that anybody would be dealing with, with anxiety or, or worry, or, I mean, like you said, though, you don't want to get to this hopelessness. Like the hopelessness is definitely very concerning and having patients, I'm sure patients have said to you things like, this is as as good as it's ever going to get for me, or I don't expect to be any better than this. Absolutely. Yeah. They're like, I guess this is it for me or just, you know, I guess it's, I guess this is what I'm going to be like for the rest of my life. I've definitely heard that. Right, right. Farada, how about you and how you have dealt with these feelings of worry or anxiety about your symptoms or about your diet or about your future since you're a young person still at school? How have you coped with all of this? Even though I'm in remission right now, I feel like I'm always wondering when my next flare up is coming. It's a constant worry that I have and like trying new food, for example, is something I'm always anxious Mm -hmm. about. 
uh, but i think support groups and therapy have really helped me to deal with this anxiety did you have any in person support groups that you found or were they mostly online uh, i actually started a support group in my university but it's not ibd specific it's mostly for students with chronic illness and then through ccyn i got to know about a lot of other fellows from india and all of us collectively started a support group so that takes place in new delhi sometimes a lot of it is offline but some of it is online as well so you have a support group for people who live with chronic illness at your school that you started which is not surprising to me at all but what what do you find that you all have in common i feel like all of just us have anxiety in common and just fear of the future like mm. i'm in my third year right now and all of us are really worrying about like our masters and graduating and all of that stuff so that really comes into play because like i wanted to study in europe after graduating uh and for me i feel like my academics is not really something i'm that worried about like i can't i'm not only worried about my grades i'm also worried about how insurance is going to get figured out mm-hmm. and how i'm going to travel with all my medications and i'll have a new physician So I think that is something all of us really worry about. We constantly have to keep this really big thing in mind. Mm-hmm. Also, like we're in college, we obviously party a lot, and that is something like I feel like sometimes we feel left out in because mm-hmm. like we can't party for seven days straight, <laughs> not even ten <laughs> days straight. But <laughs> or you could, but maybe you just shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Casada, even though we want patients to live their lives, at times there's probably a real good reason to limit activities, such as during flare-up, maybe after surgery. Do you have any tips for patients about when they really should be taking some time for themselves in order to recuperate and to get better? Absolutely. I I mean, especially with I think flare-ups in particular, I think this is an interesting thing to talk about because patients know their bodies you know patients know and they oftentimes can tell well before we do as the provider that something is awry that something's moving in the wrong direction and so first and foremost i think it's important to to reinforce to patients again this is a this is a partnership we got we got to be in communication frequently and when you start to notice things aren't going right first and foremost let let me know let us know so we can kind of get ahead of this it doesn't always happen that way sometimes things really escalate quickly and so either way i always definitely want to make sure that you know there are some patients who just again because i think they've been so good at managing and sort of pushing through that they kind of keep pushing through even as they kind of know the flare is happening and so it's it's about reminding patients to like no you you need to give yourself some space some time give your body a chance to rest and to heal you need to sleep you need to think about you know again with the diet i often recommend especially if you're in a flare like avoid dairy avoid the raw fruits and vegetables we we have sort of a some some foods that we avoid for, uh, generally speaking it's not for everyone not everyone responds exactly the same way but but the ones that we know tend to make things worse um and just again to to give yourself an opportunity to rest to heal and reach out to to not think that you need to 
manage this and just sort of power through it on your own. Um, because certainly if there's something on our end that we can help with that, you know, maybe we need to rule out an overlapping C. diff infection, or maybe we need mm. to make sure that your, your, your drug is still working um, the way that it should be. Um, gosh, we don't want you to flare for a minute longer <laughs> than necessary. And if there's anything we can do to tweak, then, then we need to know that, that you're having those symptoms sooner rather than later. Right. That's a good point that some of these things may be a solvable problem, but you need to bring it up to your doctors so that they know so that they can start to dig into it and figure out what's going on there. Farada, do you have any tips for patients who are avoiding activities, are avoiding social situations because of their IBD? What would you say to someone else that's dealing with the same issues that you are? I think it's really important to tell the people around you. uh, One of the great things I did, even though I was really scared to do it, was tell my roommate about it. And Mm. she's one of my best friends now, and she's like really supportive of it, even though she does not have IBD or any other illness. I think people can surprise you by by how supportive and loving they can be. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't get the reaction that you want. But mostly, I think people are nice and they will be supportive if you open up about your disease. I think sometimes we have to trust people. And that maybe that doesn't come easy with a diagnosis of IBD, but if, if you trust people with your truth, they can really help you. Is your roommate your, your bathroom spotter for you, Varada? She is. She's also, <laughs> so um, I get like um, the biosimilar version of Humera. It's mm-hmm. also an injection. So mm-hmm. she also like always comes and helps me out with that as well. Does she do your injection for you or do you do it yourself? I actually go to like a clinic here in my university and the nurse does it. She came with me for the first time and she was like sort of freaked out because it's like an injection you get on your stomach and she'd never see that. And the nurse spent more time calming her down than me. She was like really freaking out. She had like her hand on my shoulder and the nurse was like, it's fine. She gets this a lot. You need to calm down. You can leave. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my did did funny. she so she comes with you now still? Yes, she does. She's really nice. She always like she's every fifteen days she's there. <laughs> but she watches you get your injection now and, and is she better with that? They don't allow her in the room anymore. She waits outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well there you go. <laughs> but she comes with you, and that yes. no, that yeah. is true. Love and your roommate is going to be someone that you're going to be friends with the rest of your life. Yes, that is a special bond. Yeah, Absolutely a special bond. Farada, you're a Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network fellow. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what that has been like in your life these past few months? So I applied for the fellowship last year. And um, thankfully, I got selected. I read about Sneha and all the amazing work she's doing. And I think this is the only international fellowship because there are are a lot of um, forums and other resources for people with IBD living abroad, but not so much for people living in India. So this was the first international fellowship or any sort of resource I came across. And that's what really made me interested in it. Uh, I think last year also we had a fellow from India. So it was really nice to see all of that and representation. 
CCYAN also allows for the possibility of fellows to be able to go to a conference. Is that something that you have in the works this year? Yes. So we go to the International IBD conference every year. Right now, I think we will be attending it online because of COVID. We're not very mm-hmm. sure, but usually they fly us out from wherever we live, which is mm-hmm. like all across the world. But uh, they fly us out. We meet, we hang out. And it's really great. Uh, we just had a meeting like yesterday and we were just hanging out and having fun. Dr. Casada, I was on your Twitter. Now you're going to find out how far I was digging back into your Twitter to okay. learn a little bit more about you. I was hoping that you had shared something a little more personal, and you did. So it looks like you picked up the piano either again or for the first time recently. Yes. Yes. Can you please tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I I love music and um, I mean, I was in elementary school. I learned the clarinet for a little while, but really middle school was guitar and I still play guitar, but I kind of always wanted to learn piano. Mm-hmm. And I had for literally decades been putting it off and just like, oh, someday I'll learn how to play piano. And like, maybe when I retire and I'll have more time, I'll stay taking piano lessons. And I guess it was about a year ago, actually, um, that I was visiting my sister and my nephew was getting piano lessons. And it was, of course, in the midst of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So his piano instructor lived hours away and they were doing it over the phone. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. It never occurred to me that you could do that. And suddenly it was like a light bulb went off. And I was like, I could do that if I can do it from home. And, you know, my piano instructor can just, you know, zoom in and teach me. Then why not? Why do I have to wait until I'm retired? I should just mm-hmm. figure out a way to do this now. And so I actually um, work with the same instructor um, who teaches my nephew, who's just like a wonderful human being uh, in, out in Virginia Beach. And, and it's been going great. It's been really fun. It's, I think, important to always try to challenge yourself to learn new things. And I'm grateful that I decided not to wait until I'm retiring to go ahead and just like we've been talking about to, to do the things now that, that you want to do and, and learn the things that you want to learn. Mm-hmm. So there's something that I have been thinking about a lot as I'm in the tail end of my 40s. And that's the idea that you can do something because it is fun and it enriches you but you can also be bad at it. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, and I'm not. And I'm not saying that you're bad at anything. But what I'm saying is, well, I'm is, not that good. Let's be honest. But you're. But you're. But you're learning. And I think that it, right as a child, you're. You sort of expect that. to be the case. But as an adult learner, I feel like for myself, I've had to come around to um, understanding that I'm not going to be good at every new thing I try. Is that something that you ever think about as well? And as you're uh, going through your piano lessons with your instructor? Yes, definitely. I think, in fact, 
it's it's kind of nice to have an activity where you can just kind of giggle when you mess up. You know, the, if anything, I laugh at myself when I realize like, oh, I can't get this. And it's it's part of the fun um, is just allowing myself to make the mistakes and just be like, it, this is, it's all part of the fun. So yes. And the videos like that I pose is not because I'm <laughs> not because I'm playing anything very exciting to watch and not without mistakes, but it's like, here it is. This is where I am right now. And I'm just happy to be playing. Well, it's really brave. I loved it. I loved, <laughs> I watched the video and then the look on your face when you shut off the video, it was just priceless. Like the whole thing, I just i just loved it. So I hope you share more videos like that. And <laughs> and yeah, I mean, way different than a colonoscopy, right? Because you can make yeah. a mistake there. Like that's not a giggle situation. Yeah. <laughs> not a situation where you want to just giggle when something goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dr. Quesada, Varada, thank you so much for coming on about IBD. I really appreciate your time and digging into this topic around how we can reduce the day-to-day burden with IBD. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Um, Thank you for creating this forum, this platform for for patients with IBD. And Varada, thank you so much for being amazing and for sharing just your really powerful stories. Really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. This has been lovely. I really enjoyed meeting you. Hey, super listener. Thank you to Dr. Sandra Cazada for sharing her knowledge and experience in helping patients manage their disease and get back to living a full life. I'm so grateful that the IBD community has access to her compassion and commitment. If you also want to experience the joy of watching her videos, you can follow her on Twitter as at Sandra Cazada, MD. Thank you also to Varadis Ravastava who was so accommodating and made time to call in despite the challenges of us being in vastly different time zones. Plus, she was able to manage the technical difficulties that tend to crop up with remote recording. You can follow her work through the Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network. Links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 115 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me, Amber Tresca, across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. The American Gastroenterological Association and About IBD, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD podcast series is supported by Arena Pharmaceuticals. About IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio.